We'll keep going. Thank you uh, for your kindness. If, as you're opening up to Genesis 14, uh, verses 17 through 24, I'd just like to say a word of thanks on behalf of myself and our whole staff. Um, this has been a weird year to be in ministry. I guess it's been a weird year to do anything, hasn't it? But it's been a weird year to be in ministry, and it's been a joy for us to get to serve this church uh, during this season. I, I read an article the other day that was titled, Six Reasons Why Your Pastor's About to Quit. And uh, so, well, that's encouraging. And uh, I read it, and there are a couple of reasons I didn't even know about. You know, here I yeah. No, the reality is, I remember reading that and thinking, I, I praise God that that's not the boat I'm in. Uh, there are some pastors who have been through the difficulties of trying to lead through these challenges, and their churches made it worse. And you guys have made it better. I love you so much and thankful for you. It's a miracle every day to me. I've been here at First Baptist for eight years. Um, and uh, uh, every day it's a miracle. I thank the Lord that I get to serve here. And then I get the double miracle of, of the amazing, gifted, high-caliber, world-class staff that I get to serve with. Sometimes I look and I think it's just a double miracle every day. Y'all keep me and they stick around and, uh, and keep working with me here at the church. And so I praise the Lord for that and uh, praise Jesus for that opportunity and uh, praise God just for the, the ability to get to serve the Lord here at First Baptist Church. And so when you all say thanks, it really does mean the world to each and every one of us. And so we, we praise God for that. And uh, if you have your Bibles open... Why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading, the words of our God. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cater Laomer and the kings who were with, um, who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together with your people today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Filmmakers and showrunners and people who produce so much of the content that we get to watch are masters of telling stories. So often for us, something from a movie or a TV show, a story sticks with us 
for years. I love to read novels as well, and obviously those are master storytellers, but the experience that so many of us share are the ways that filmmakers and those who make TV shows can tell a story so well. As you've watched a movie or a television show, have you ever seen sort of a, a cutaway scene where you're not quite sure what's going on or how it relates? It cuts sometimes even to another time or to another place or to another person, something that seems not to be related at all to that which you're reading or watching. Perhaps it's a scene of two people sitting down to a dinner date. Or, or, or maybe it's a scene of a seemingly random character in a car or on a bicycle. Or, or maybe it's a battle scene set in another country. And then suddenly, though, as the story progresses and you begin to see the picture of what the storyteller is trying to do, you realize there's a connection to the story that you're watching. The dinner date was actually between the main character's parents. You're getting some backstory as to who this person is and how they came to be. The bicycle cuts in front of your character's car, adding to the frustration of their day. Maybe by the end of the day they snap or something else happens or it slows them down just enough to make the plot turn a certain way. The, the war in the other country causes a problem for the characters you know or someone they know is involved. Or perhaps you see a scene of an immense and epic war where all sorts of nations from all over the place are gathered together in the field of war. And in the midst of the war, your character, the one you care about, the one you're following, the one you want to know what happens, your character's family is taken captive. It's precisely the sort of thing we turn to today. We are out of the blue meeting some new characters in the narrative of Genesis. Moses is introducing us in a unique way to, to a turn in the plot of Abraham's life, and he's helping elucidate and clarify and shine light on, shine light on the way that God is blessing all nations through the promises and through the life of Abraham. New characters are introduced to us in chapter 14. We first encounter some kings, the kings of Shinar, of Elisar, of Elam, and the king of Goyim. We're, we're going to give them a name, okay? We're going to call them the Babylonian Alliance. And, and they've decided to go to war with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and Zoar. Let's call this group the Jordan Valley Kings. So let me just set this up. The, the, the main player in all of this, if this was a mob movie, this is the godfather, okay? Keterleomer. Keterleomer is the king of Shinar. And more than once in this Genesis narrative, Moses has tried to associate this plain of Shinar, this region of Shinar with a place in our minds, and that place is Babylon. And when we start thinking about the big story of all that's going on in all of the Bible, this is almost like seeing the backstory of a comic book hero or someone else, and you start to hear something like, this is a place called Gotham City. Babylon, a famous place in the biblical narratives. And so for 12 years, the kings of the Jordan Valley, those nearest to Abram, they were subjugated to Cater Laomer. They were forced to pay taxes to him, uh, in subjugation to him, this main king of the Babylonian 
alive. And so after 12 years of taxes, they said they've had enough. And so they quit paying rent. And you know what happens when you quit paying rent? When you quit paying the money you owe to the Godfather, what happens? He shows up at your business. A shakedown begins. So the boss and his boys hit the warpath. As you can see in verses 5 through 7, if you wanted to look back and read this, you can see that they are running like a buzzsaw through the region. Anyone who tries to stand up against them, they win. And so the Jordan Valley Kings, it almost sounds kind of like a cool New York gang or something, you know. Um, The Jordan Valley Kings, the JVKs, go out to meet these guys. They're going to try to go out here to this Valley of the Kings to try to repel the Babylonian alliance's invasion. I'm sorry, this is the Valley of Sedim. They fell miserably. Things don't go well. The same thing happens to them that's happened to all the other people. And this Babylonian alliance takes lots and lots of people captive. In fact, the, the, the Jordan Valley kings get beat so bad as they can't even retreat properly. And as they're retreating, they fall into tar pits here in this area. Cater Lammer, the boss, the godfather, the kingpin, he and the boys are riding high. They're undefeated and they feel good about it. They're feeling great about it. They take all the possessions of those that they have conquered and they head on their way. But they make a mistake. The undefeated team makes a mistake. They make a huge tactical error, one that they wouldn't have even been able to see at face value what they're doing. Unbeknownst to them, they made a major mistake that would result in their undoing. They also, verse 12, took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went there way. Somebody escapes and comes and tells Abram that Lot has been, uh, has been defeated, I mean been captured. Abram finds out about this and Abram does what very few of us would do. He goes after the alliance. Now many of us might say, well you know what Lot, sorry buddy, you chose to live there, you chose to do this, you should have been stronger. Tough luck. I'm here with my promises. I'm going to do what God's told me to do, and you're on your own. But that's not what Abram does. Instead, when he learns that Lot has been taken, he goes after them, and he does so with very limited numbers, just a little over 300 of his own men. He goes after them. He catches them. He whoops them. I mean, he takes care of them. He gets all the stuff back, brings it back home, takes Lot with him, and goes home. And on his way back home, he encounters... Another character, another person, someone who shows up here in the history of the Bible, gets talked about some later, but he shows up here in the history of the Bible, and he disappears here in the history of the Bible. And and the story of what happens when Abram meets this mysterious character helps us make sense of this episode, this cutaway, this big picture of world events that the Spirit wants us to see as we study the life of Abraham. This meeting with this character informs us about this episode, and it informs us about the way that God keeps His promises. This morning, this text is going to give us a fuller picture, a more rich and robust picture of what it means for Abram 
to be a blessing to all the nations and to see the way that God is using Abram to bless all the nations. This morning, we're going to look at three truths that are going to help us understand what it means for God's mission to be a global mission. God's at work, not just here, not just in America, not just in Jerusalem. God is at work all over the world. He always has been and He always will be. And as we look to this text, we're going to see some clarity on the way God has always worked and even some clarity on how He's working today. Here's our first point this morning. God's mission is a global mission. God's mission is a global mission. After His return, verse 17, from the defeat of Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, as you're reading the narrative of Genesis, if you're reading it for the first time, this really would feel like a scene that doesn't quite make sense. God has made a promise to Abram. He has promised a land to Abram. Abram is going to that land, and yet here all of a sudden, the, the, the author, Moses, begins to talk about these crazy world events that are going on that seem far removed from what's happening in the life of Abraham. In fact, we would expect as we go through the narrative for Abram to mind his own business, to continue to go where God tells him, to have his big family, to bless the world, and that be that. And yet God's plan is to use Abraham and his family. God is doing something strange here in chapter 14 where he is showing his plan to use Abraham and his family to introduce the name of God and the power of God and the blessing of God and the love of God to the entire world. You see, my friends, God's mission has always been a global mission. You just back up into chapter 12 when God makes his promises to Abraham. He says to him so clearly in verses 2 and 3, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Once again, it just seems like maybe Abraham ought to just mind his own business and stay at home and, and just let God bless him. God goes on, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So often as Christians, I, I think that we think that the idea of God's global mission began in the New Testament. I, I think we think this is a new thing, right? That, that the idea that God wants all the nations to come to know Him and to be glorified and blessed by Him, I think we think Typically, as Christians, a lot of times that this is an exclusively New Testament idea, that the Great Commission started at the Great Commission. The Great Commission started when God created the heavens and the earth. God's plan has always been a global plan. God has never been uh, uh, satisfied with merely being a local God. No, He is the King of heaven and earth. And I think you can see here how God embedded the idea of a global mission here in His very promises to Abraham. And here we see Abraham stepping out onto the world stage. Abraham stepping out and encountering kings of the earth, men of great power, and yet God is blessing him in their midst. And even in the way that Abraham is behaving and what is happening here, you can see the way that some oppose Abram, 
Things don't go so well, do they? When people oppose Abram. But others embrace Abram, and they're blessed. You see, this is a picture. Early on here in the book of Genesis, Moses is showing us and recording for us the way that God put Abraham in the presence of the nations, and that as Abram goes forth, some people accept him, some people reject him, and it's a picture of the way that the gospel will one day go forth as an intended blessing to all who will follow him in faith, and all who will see Yahweh as God Most High, the Lord of heaven and earth. You see this? Do you see God's plan? Do you see God's mission? This isn't something new for us, my friends. This isn't something that's only rooted in the New Testament. This is how God has always been at work. And so as we move here very quickly into Lottie Moon season, right? As we move very quickly into a time when we focus on world missions. For those of you who don't know, Lottie Moon is our Christmas offering, and we give 100% of those offerings as Southern Baptists to the IMB to help fund our missionaries all over the world. One of my best friends in the world right now is a missionary in Ghent, Belgium. Another dear friend of mine is a missionary who's getting ready to go back to Italy soon to serve the Lord, and we help fund that. And that's not just because of the New Testament. That's because God's heart has always been for missions. And so we must recognize that we need to build into the warp and woof of what we are doing as a church and as individuals. We need to make sure that the contours of our lives and the contours of our church line up beautifully with the contours of what God has been doing forever. And that is bringing people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation into knowing Him serving him god's mission is a global mission but here's the second truth i want you to know today the the, the second thing i want to make sure you know is this god's mission is carried out in his power god's mission is carried out in his power you had a group of uh eight or nine kings who are sort of being focused on in the first half of this chapter And then by the end of the chapter, it narrows down, really, to three men. Abram, Keterleomer, the godfather, right? And a new guy. A new guy shows up sort of out of the blue. Um, That's how the author of Hebrews talks about it, at least. The author of Hebrews says he has no beginning, he has no end. He simply appears in the text, and that's what we know of him. His name is Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Melchizedek, the priest king, shows up. He, he's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Many think that this is short for what would one day be Jerusalem. That, that he is king there where eventually God would make his earthly kingdom centered. Melchizedek, this priest king, shows up here. He meets Abram here in the king's valley and he brings with him bread and wine, a picture of the blessings of God throughout the scriptures. And there he blesses Abram. Now what might you expect a man who's coming out to meet a defeating king, a conquering king, a conquering warlord, what might you expect him to say when he blesses him? Oh, great are you. It's like a political ad. Boom, boom, boom. The best ever, or whatever. But what does he say? Blessed be Abram, verse 19, by God 
Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has what? Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, do you see what is happening here? Do you see the logic of what God is doing here? When this man who knows the Lord and who worships the Lord comes to bless Abram, what does he say? He says, blessed be Abram by God. Not by the work of Abram's hands, not by Abram's own might, not man. I know God most high must be thankful to have a man like Abram on his side who goes out and whoops the kings who can't be whooped. No, he praises God and he recognizes that it's God's power and God's power alone that is at work here. And as priest of God Most High, the one true God, he recognizes something by faith, I think, that is happening through Abram. And in response, what does Abram do? Abram tithes. Abram, being a good Baptist, decides he's going to tithe. Gives 10% to Melchizedek, this priest king. It's a foreshadowing we see later of the way that the priests would receive tithes from the people of God. Here Abram gives 10% of the spoils to Melchizedek, recognizing his role as priest and the truthfulness of his understanding of God's power. You see what Abram's doing? He's saying, to God alone belongs the victory, and to God alone belongs all acclamation and all praise and all thankfulness for what has happened here. It's not about Abram, it's about God. And so Abram takes these spoils, which he has 100% right to, and he gives 10% of those spoils to the Lord. He's responding positively to this recognition of the power of God. And I think one of the lessons we have to learn from this text and one of the reasons why the Spirit inspired Moses to put it here for us to read and to know is that we need to know something so clearly as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to know something with utmost clarity. And it's this, God's ability to carry out His mission is not dependent on us. God's ability to carry out His mission is not dependent on us. I hear some of the most blasphemous things sometimes. Things that blow my mind. I've heard people say that if an election doesn't go a certain way, that'll be the end of Christianity in the world. That's not just wrong, that's blasphemy, guys. That's sinful to say things like that. As if the God of the universe, the possessor of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is dependent on America? I've heard people say, if the Southern Baptist Convention were to go away, that would be the end of missions in the world today. That's not just wrong. That is pridefully blasphemous to have ourselves so much at the center of God's plan that we think God needs us. That God needs us to get His will done. Now here's the reality. It was not up to Abraham. And it is not up to us to carry out God's mission. But guess what? We get to be a part of God's mission. One of the means by which God will carry out His mission is faithful Southern Baptists. One of the means by which God will be pleased to carry out His mission in the world 
It should take the richest country in the world that's a free country that happens to consist of millions of Christians and God will use that country in so many ways as a free country to take the gospel to the nations. God is pleased to do that in so many ways. But my friends, we can never for a moment get so puffed up in our strength, get so puffed up in our pride, think that we are the conquerors, we are the able ones, when it's God who's at work, not us. Only by His grace, only by His strength. Abraham recognizes that. Melchizedek recognizes that. And you, who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, who are sustained every day, only by His grace, do you see it too? God will bless the nations. He is not dependent on us to do it. He'll do it by the preaching of the gospel of the Son. Through our weakness, through us preaching what He's told us, preach i've read the end of the book i see that beautiful scene in revelation where people from every tribe tongue language and nation are worshiping god forever are are gathered around the lamb giving him the praise he deserves oh saints we get to participate what a joy it is that we get to be a part What, what, what beauty it is that god would use us just like what a beauty it is that God would use Abraham. But at the same time, he didn't need Abraham. And he doesn't need us. And that leads us to our last point this morning. God is not a tribal God. God is not a tribal God. God's mission is a global mission. God's mission is carried out in his power. God is not a tribal God. God. Now Melchizedek's happy, right? He's pleased. He's worshiping the Lord. He's thanking God. He is praising the Lord. He's receiving a tenth of the spoils on behalf of the Lord in so many ways. But the king of Sodom is not so happy. Compared to the, the flowing beauty and almost effusiveness in so many ways of Melchizedek, the king of Sodom's a little more churlish, a little more reserved. Abram gives... Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He doesn't seem very happy, does he? I'll I'll have the people, you have the stuff, you deserve it. He doesn't seem very pleased. But notice how Abraham responds. He says to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. In other words, Abram says, well, I won't dip into my own pockets to save your hide, but I'll take what the men who are with me have eaten. Let Anair, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share what is going on here why is abram willing to give melchizedek a tenth of the spoils which he owns but unwilling to keep the rest of the 90 percent for himself it's because abram is trying to make clear that the god he serves is not like the gods they serve It is not a tribal God who's primarily concerned about Abram's success. 
It's not a God that, that we just give credit for the things we do in our own strength. Abram is actually saying that God is in control and that God deserves the glory. It's God who gave the victory and he is giving 10% of the spoils for the Lord and he is then turning to the king of Sodom and saying, you will not be the one who says, I made Abram rich. You will not let my God get shrunk down into the tiny warring deities that you claim to serve. My God is God of heaven and earth and when he gives victories, he gives victories and if he wants to give me riches he will give me riches but it will be through no help of the king of Sodom he refuses to shrink God down to the size of temporary blessing he refuses to shrink God down to the size of a tribal God and there's something important for us to remember here we don't serve the God of First Baptist Church we don't serve the southern God the American God, we don't serve the political God, the God of a certain party or the God of a certain household. We, we don't serve a tiny God. We don't serve a tribal God. We're not the certain sort of group of Baptists from the southeastern United States. And so therefore, we have this God that's on our side and behind us. We serve the God of heaven and earth who sent his son into the world to die for everyone's sins. We are on God's side. We follow him. We don't have... A tribal God. Be careful, my friends, that you don't shrink God down. We don't serve a small God. We, we don't serve a local God or a tribal de deity. We see this picture here of what God is doing in the life of Abram. And in a world that seemed littered with gods. Every tribe, every tongue... Every nation, every language seemed to have their own God. Seemed to serve their own God. When they would go to battle against one another, the question would be, whose God's going to win? We don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who is king over all the earth. We serve a God who's made it clear to us that in fact there are no other gods at all. There is only one God. We serve the living God who has a global mission to bless all the nations through His Son, Jesus Christ. We serve a God of grace who's not a tiny God who's only committed to us being good and doing well. We serve a God who's committed to all people at all times, coming to know Him by His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. My friends, we must be so careful not to shrink the Lord down and make Him like the other gods that other people serve. He is the God of heaven and earth. There's nothing that's outside His control. He owns everything. And by His blood, He's bought everything. And we look at a story like this, and as it begins, it feels like it's kind of a sideshow. It, it feels like it's a flashback. It, it feels like it's a subplot at first. But the nearer you get to a heart of a text like this, you begin to be surprised and realize it's so much nearer to the plot than I thought. As we get to the center of this text, we get to the center of the heart of God. A God who loves all nations and wants His glory to be known among all nations on His terms. God's using this man Abram, who He called out of pagan idolatry, to help bring this message to the world. And ultimately, preserving him being careful with him and preserving his family in order that he might bring 
His Son into the world so that people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation will know that there's one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that one day those people will worship Him forever and ever and ever. Amen. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I want you to know you can do that today. You can turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ. I believe He will save you. And so right where you are today, I believe you can do that. You can put your trust and faith in Jesus. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I, I've made God too small in my heart, in my mind, and in my life. Take this time now to pray to the Lord that He'll show Himself big through the gospel to you today. He's not a tribal God. He's God of all the earth. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. You, you think and pray about that today. And after this service, about any of these things, I'd love to talk to you about what faithfulness to the Lord would look like in your life. After this prayer, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to hear your word today. And Lord, it's our prayer that you would move among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.